want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched The Blair Witch Project so that we can study beginnings and endings. This 1999 film was written and directed by Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Merrick. It's their debut film and it's one of the most successful independent movies of all time. Almost entirely improvised, it cost $35,000 US dollars to make and it grossed more than $250 million. It also spawned a franchise of books, comics and video games. And most importantly, it scared viewers half to death. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And anyway, we're assuming that those who haven't seen this movie have no intention of watching it. So you won't have to (laughs) when you listen to this podcast because you know exactly what happened. (laughs) Right. We would like to ask a favour and we'd love it if you could give our show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, why don't you kick us off this week and tell us what you think the genres are? Well, I just want to start by saying what a good sport Melanie has been to say yes to doing the Blair Witch Project because I know horror is not her favorite thing. So, uh, you know, hip hip hooray for Melanie for taking this one on. So the genre is a supernatural horror. That's the global genre. And I don't think there is an internal genre. It's horror. Who wants an internal genre in horror? Just, no, no. We just need a last, a final girl. Um, Melanie, what did you think for the genre? (laughs) So no surprise there. I think it's, yes, I had horror ambiguous or supernatural is what I had. So very, pretty much the same. Although I did think maybe Heather has a bit of internal genre, you know, growth going on. Not that it makes any difference to the rest of her life, but I I did have that thought. But like you, I don't think it's an essential thing in this particular style of movie. So this season I'm studying beginnings and endings, and I will get to that in a minute. But first I want to talk about why I chose this movie. First of all, it's Halloween week. So, you know, we've got to do something spooky. But more than that, and more importantly than that for the purposes of the show, it's because as novelists, I think we have a whole lot to learn from this movie. And chief among them is the importance of innovation and the power of the imagination. So let me start by talking about the importance of innovation. Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Merrick were brand new filmmakers when they made this movie. They were indie filmmakers fresh out of film school. This is their debut movie. So they didn't have a lot of experience and like they had no money. As Melanie said off the top, this had a budget of $35,000, which would be about $62,000 today. Still not a lot of money. All they really had was 
a knowledge of storytelling fundamentals, and a passion for the genre that they were working in. From that, they built their careers, they spawned a franchise, and they changed the way that horror movies were made. Not bad, right? Not a bad start. Sanchez and Merrick are fans of the genre, but they realized that the supernatural documentaries that they watched were actually spookier to them than the horror movies. So they had the idea to create a work of fiction as though it were a documentary. The idea of found footage technically wasn't theirs. They got it from a movie that came out in 1980 called Cannibal Holocaust. It's a, I think it's an Italian film. Now, I have not watched Cannibal Holocaust, and I will never watch Cannibal Holocaust because, by all accounts, it's gruesome and gory, and it contains sexual violence and genuine cruelty to animals. And I, nope, that is not okay with me. I do like spooky stories, though, but the ones without any gore. So I love ghost stories and haunted house stories and gothic literature, all of which is still within that horror genre, but these are stories that rely heavily on the audience's imagination. They're full of tension and suspense, but not blood or dismembered body parts. Like, ugh. <laughs> ugh. <laughs> okay, so back to the Blair Witch Project. Sanchez and Merrick borrowed the found footage concept, and they just ran with it. This is, as I've already said, a little tiny indie film, and they didn't have the budget or the the technology really to rely on CGI special effects or, uh, you know, they couldn't buy uh, an A-list music score. They couldn't hire A-list actors. All they had were storytelling fundamentals and their viewers' imaginations. And you know what? That's all we have too as novelists. That's why I've chosen this movie above all else. Using that storytelling fundamentals and their viewers' imaginations they turned a $35,000 investment into a $250 million revenue. Not a bad return. And it blows the return of a movie like Dune out of the water. Now, if you remember the episode that Melanie and I did on Dune way back when, we said then that there really wasn't enough story there for us to talk about. The casting and the costuming and the music and the CGI were all awesome, but there really wasn't much of a story. It cost $165 million to make, and uh, it only generated $402 million. So, it, I mean, if you just do the math, obviously the Blair Witch Project is a much more profitable venture than Dune. And Dune had Denis Villeneuve as the director. Dune had Hans Zimmer scoring it, and it was distributed by Warner Brothers, a major Hollywood film studio. So this is a real David and Goliath story, and David, once again, is winning handily. So this is akin to a self-published author putting out their first book and outselling the likes of Stephen King. I mean, that's what's happening here. And what Sanchez and Merrick are doing is sticking to the fundamentals of storytelling. For example, they make effective use of what's called the good laugh, which is like a pressure valve. And writers of horror or you know really intense thriller, they use it 
<laughs> to manipulate the emotions of their audience, really. That's what's happening here. <laughs> and because what they want to do is release the pressure, release that intensity in their audience. So you'll often see in a horror or a, an intense thriller, some sort of funny sidekick or something like that, that provides the good laugh. This is a really important function because the writer is building up tension in the audience and you have to give the audience a chance to relieve that stress because if you don't, it's going to bubble out in the wrong places and they'll start to laugh when they should be scared. Not because they think it's actually funny, but because that's a really human natural response to release the pressure. So if you give them places to actually laugh, it releases that tension and then you get to build it back up again. So it's a really effective storytelling technique. And I always think of it for any of you who have ever gone on long road trips with little kids, you got to build in pee breaks, right? <laughs> like when you stop for gas, everyone's got to go to the loo because there won't be anywhere else to stop for a hundred miles. <laughs> it's kind of like that. So the Blair Witch Project follows uh, generally an arc plot structure. And there's a clear, powerful midpoint shift. I, I think it's almost exactly right in the middle. And that's when they find the stick figures in the trees. That's when they're really, that's really a point of no return. They're targeted then by, by the supernatural entity, which presumably is the Blair Witch. Now, of course, I can't move on any further without mentioning that this movie is a prime example of dramatic irony and how effective it can be. Because we as the audience know that all three of these characters disappear. As we're watching the movie, we're waiting for, you know, the witch to jump out and get them. We know their fate, but they don't. And it causes incredible anxiety in us. Because we're in dramatic irony, the whole experience of walking in the woods, even in the daylight, is unsettling. Now contrast this to Wild that we did last uh, season. That's also a story where there's a woman walking in the wilderness. But in that case, it didn't cause any anxiety or tension in us at all. We weren't particularly scared for Cheryl Strayed because we knew that she was fine. Here, we know that Heather and Mike and Josh disappear. So it causes a totally different reaction in the viewer. This is so well done. Okay, so the second thing is the power of the imagination. So the Blair Witch Project came out in 1999. So it is a bit hard to remember the impact that it had on audiences at the time because it's been around so long now that we kind of know the story. And for anyone who hasn't uh, watch the movie or read the Wikipedia summary. Basically, there's a title card that comes up at the beginning that says uh, these three kids disappeared. They went into the woods a year ago, were never heard of again, and we just came across the footage from the documentary that they were making. And it follows these three students, filmmakers, as they go into the woods to, to do a documentary on the Blair Witch, which is sort of a spooky story in this community that no one really believes, but the, the community folk don't want to admit that they don't believe it just in case it's true. And then they don't want to say if they disbelieve, then the witch is going to come get them. So it starts with a lot of clips of interviews with local townsfolk as they tell us about the Blair Witch. Then the kids go into the woods and they film 
There's a couple of spots they want to go to. They film those spots. They do it great. It's when they're leaving that they get lost and they come across these twig figures. They're like stick figures made of twigs hanging in trees and it freaks them out. And they're like, we're out of here. We are leaving. We're going home. And they hike for like all day and they're exhausted only to come right back to the place they started. And they don't know how that happened. They lose their map and then they're really up a creek. So it's three kids. It's Heather, Mike, and Josh. Josh goes missing and we presume that he's been killed because we hear screams and stuff in the forest. And then it's down to Heather and Mike. Now the whole thing is if you think about home videos that you have taken when camcorders first came out, you know how shaky they all are because no one quite knew how to hold these cameras? That's what's happening in the Blair Witch Project. So there's a very shaky camera. It gets dropped plenty of times. It really does feel like the type of footage that you would delete from a documentary when if you were actually going to make the documentary. It really does feel like raw footage. Okay, so think back then to 1999 when this came out. It terrified audiences because nobody knew if this was real found footage or if this was fiction. In the movie, you never ever see the Blair Witch. You never see a dead body. There is about a teaspoon of blood, but that's about it. Yet the audiences, the people who watched it, couldn't sleep. I remember when this came out and there were people who categorically refused to go just because the word of mouth was so powerful. And it was too, just the description of it, just their friend's reaction to it was so strong that they didn't want to go. That's, that's pretty powerful stuff. So this movie, even though it's been out a while, it's still scaring audiences. As proof, I offer up my daughter and her three friends. <laughs> Last Halloween, they asked me for a horror movie recommendation, and this is the one I gave them. So they were all 18 years old at the time, and they were good and spooked. They really were. I remember when they watched it. Now, in preparation for this week's episode, I asked my daughter to explain to me what it was that she found so scary. And she, she gave me a lot of reasons, but chief among them, and the thing that for our purposes that I think is the most interesting is that she said she found it, and they all found it, terrifying that they never actually saw the witch. The, the boogeyman never did pop out. And the reason that that is so powerful, that the, re- the source of evil is never revealed, the reason that is so powerful is because whatever it is the viewer or your reader conjures up in their own mind is definitely going to be scarier than whatever it is you can give them. So this is taking the viewer's imagination and kind of making it work against them in your favor, in their favor too, because anyone who goes to a horror horror movie is going because they want to get a a scare in a comfortable setting. So it's you're giving them what they want. In any story, the main character or main characters are stand-ins for the reader or viewer. So in other words, the audience is looking to the main characters 
to know how to feel. Like if we think back to last season when we talked about, when I talked about the hero's gift expressed, the reason we knew that a character was like legally blonde, the reason we knew Elle was so good is because the other characters told us she was so good. So we went along with it. We took their word for it. In a love story in Pride and Prejudice, when Elizabeth falls in love, we fall in love. That's how it works. The main character is the stand-in for the audience. So in the Blair Witch Project, when Josh is targeted, it freaks us out because it freaks everyone. It freaks the three of them out. He's got sticky stuff all over him. All his stuff is sticky. And this is the first attack. So we know it's like the red shirt in Star Trek, right? You know, the guy with the red shirt is getting killed off. In Blair Witch, you know, since Josh's belongings have this sticky goo on them, that Josh has been targeted and it is unnerving. We're already in dramatic irony because we know what happens to these kids. Now we know that Josh, the clock is really ticking for this kid. We know he's going and he's such a nice guy. Like he's kind of the mediator between Heather and Mike in many parts of the film. You know, we don't want him to die. We don't want him to get attacked. All right. So then Josh disappears, which is heartbreaking and terrifying. And we then, our anxiety for the fate of Mike and Heather increases because now we know, okay, here we go. This is, we're really ramping up now. We hear sounds in the woods. There's children playing. We hear Josh screaming or what we presume is Josh screaming from an unknown direction out in the blackness of the woods. There's a pile of sticks outside their tent one morning. And when Heather opens and, and it's a pile of sticks with, with the fabric wrapped around it. And when Heather takes the fabric off and opens up the pile of sticks, there's another bundle of fabric. And this is fabric from Josh, Josh's shirt. She opens it up and Josh's teeth is inside with, uh, like I said, a teaspoon of blood. You'd spit out more blood if you went to the dentist's office, really. This is not a bloody movie at all, at all. So what Sanchez and Merrick have done is to an audience of adults tapped into our fear of the dark and our fear of the unknown and our fear of things that go bump in the night and they exploited it. So good. Okay, before I go on, Melanie, I know you have thoughts. Lay them on me. I do. So I remember when this came out as well because my sister went to see it at the cinema and she is probably worse than me when it comes to watching scary movies. And she told me how scared she was and how when she watched it she did not know, well, she thought it was a true story and that affected her for days and days until she was told that, no, it was actually a movie and it didn't really happen, which I find and I, so that was enough for me to go, this is not a movie that I ever want to watch. And I have resisted <laughs> for all that time <laughs> until now. So I, I think the suggestion of like it, it amazes me at how just the suggestion of something can cause such a big reaction in people 
but when you go down and look at it, so I didn't watch it in the dark. I didn't want, because I don't enjoy that experience, whereas other people do, and my husband does, and my daughter does. So she watched it with me um, because she enjoys being scared. I don't know why, but so I thought, no, I wanted to watch it with someone as well. So I roped her into watching it with me. But I just was, so I could watch it, I suppose, from a little bit more of an objective point of view, especially on the first time. And I could really see how that suggestion of of the unknown, of the fear of what could be going on, it was very powerful and I did appreciate that. But I, there were things after I watched it a second, third, a second and third time and I could watch it at night time then after I'd seen it the first time um, that then I started to look at it in a, from a different point of view. But I can, I understand the reason that I don't watch movies like this is because the power of suggestion and my imagination is so strong and I know what will happen through experience and that is why I don't watch it. So it is interesting and fascinating to see that play out and see how the writers tapped into that because I'm someone who probably would go into it if I was forced to and come out with that very um, traumatised reaction to something like this. Yeah, so I, I found that very interesting as writers to tap into that fear and then use that technique to create this story. Awesome, awesome. You haven't dissed it yet. I'll keep going. (laughs) So let's talk about beginnings and endings now. So following effective story form, the beginning hook and the ending payoff of the Blair Witch Project are about the same length. So you've got 12 minutes for the beginning and 13 minutes for the end. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. The beginning does everything a beginning hook should do. It sets up the whole story. It clearly establishes the genre and introduces the supernatural element. It builds up the myth of the Blair Witch. It establishes dramatic irony, as I've said already. But it also sets up the end. Now, the end of the Blair Witch Project is something that has caused audiences some consternation. Sanchez and Merrick were aware of the audience's feelings. They know this is not a perfect film. But... Since the movie did a very fine job of scaring the pants off the audience, which was their goal, they decided not to touch the movie because it was working for what they wanted it to work for. So in the end of the whole movie, this won't be a scary description, I promise. So Mike and Heather are the the survivors. Josh is gone. Mike and Heather are now wandering through the woods and they come across Uh, an abandoned, dilapidated house. And they go in hoping that maybe Josh is in there. And as they're walking through the house, um, you can see children's handprints on the wall. I I guess it's supposed to be handprints in blood. And they get separated. So we're in Heather's point of view. We stay with Heather. And Mike is gone and she's calling out to Mike. She is screaming hysterically his name. She's crying. Like she's really freaking out. She goes into the basement and she sees Mike and she's still screaming. She drops her camera. And when she does, uh, everything falls silent. Now, Mike is standing uh, in the corner and he's facing the wall and she's calling out to him and he doesn't turn around. 
her camera drops and it goes silent, but we still hear the, the, the tick, 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 tick of the film in the camera. And that's the only sound we hear because her camera is continuing to roll. And that's the end of the movie. Now, audiences haven't liked this because we are used to closed endings in stories that because that's what we usually get in this arc plot structure. A closed ending where all the loose ends are tied up is the kind of thing that we are used to. So we expect it. You know, we, we want a resolution because we usually get a resolution. But that doesn't happen here. And personally, I kind of like that in this story. I like that we never ever see the monster, you know, which is the Blair Witch or some sort of supernatural being, whatever it is. And the reason I like it is, you know, what I was saying earlier, what we can imagine is so much scarier than whatever they would have put on the screen. So the fact that they didn't, tell us exactly what the witch was or exactly how Mike and Heather died or if they died, because they're missing, right? All we know is that they're missing. So we're assuming they're dead. Our mind starts to go to all these unimaginable horrors. And that's so much better for an audience who wants to be scared than telling us, here's what happened. Because just like Melanie said a minute ago, once you watch this movie, once, and this is probably true of most horror movies, once you watch them once, they're not nearly as scary the second time because you know what's happening. You know where the jump scares are. You know that, I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure there are movies that are scarier the second time around. I'm just blanking on an example at the moment. Okay, so in saying all of this, that ending is not out of the blue. It's actually been set up in the beginning hook. So in the beginning, we have resident interviews, and there are two men, one young and one old, who tell the story of old Mr. Parr. And the story goes like this. Seven local children went missing, and their bodies were eventually found in Parr's house. He took them into the basement in pairs, and he'd make one of them stand facing the corner while he killed the other one. He did it because he said he didn't like one kid watching him while he killed the other kid. He didn't like the, their eyes on him. And the reason he was killing the children is because he said the witch, the Blair witch, told him to. Okay. That's what we're told in the beginning. So now fast forward to the end, Mike and Heather come upon the house. This is Parr's house. And we see the children's handprints, right? So these are presumably the seven children that Parr has kidnapped and killed. And like I said, presumably these handprints are dried blood. Mike is in the basement, just like the children. He's facing the wall, just like the children. And Heather, who's the other kid in the room, is killed first, just like Parr would kill that kid first while the other one looked at the wall. Now, I'm not saying that this has been perfectly executed. Yes, there are some plot holes. However, Sanchez and Merrick have done such a good job of scaring the pants off their audience uh, that at the time when, when someone watched it through the first time, they didn't notice any of the plot holes. It's not until you analyze the story or you watch it back multiple times, that's when you start to see them. Okay, I'll take a breath now. 
That's all I have to say about that right now, Melanie. <laughs> what have you got for us? <laughs> well, so I suppose I took an approach because I, I didn't want to be scared. So I could probably identify the plot, hot plot holes first up. So I'm here to bring you the plot holes this week. Um, however, before I do that, though, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that I don't like adult horror stories. I don't watch them. I don't read them. Um, but I will say at the end, I, I'm with a lot of people, I didn't like the hang, hanging ending. Um, that did not work for me. I, and, and it's because that we're being conditioned, right, to expect a level of wrapping up or some sort of conclusion. I do understand, though, that it fits with what they were trying to do and the found footage um, premise of the, of the movie. So, and so... Now into sequence breaking down. Right, so this is, as Valerie mentioned, a relatively short movie at one hour, 20 minutes. And give or take, the sequences break into about 10 minutes each. And I do check this every time I go through every week and I look at that. Usually what happens, and this is very common in most of the movies we've watched so far this season, the final sequence is always shorter than the other sequences. And it's shorter between depending on how long the movie is by about on average four to five minutes anyway that's just an interesting thing to note and that makes sense in terms of movies and timing and having to do the ending credits all right so again this week I've used a single central action to summarize what happens in each sequence and this is a fascinating study for me I've particularly in this movie so in sequence one we have establishing the Blair Witch myth in Burkittsville. Now, an interesting thing about sequence one is that it's meant to have a point of attack. So at some point, the protagonist is meant to experience the unsettling event that then triggers the rest of the movie or the rest of the story. And there isn't a point of attack in this first act. So it doesn't happen to our three protagonists. In the second sequence, we have the coffin rock threshold and first camp. Now, this is where we start to should get a, a sense of the predicament. And I think we do. Heather is driving the trio deeper into the forest and she can't read a map. But again, there's no attack, but it, they're going further and further and we get a sense of the fact that they're probably going to get lost at, at some point in time in the movie. And it's an eerie forest. It's the, either autumn or winter. And it's, it's not somewhere where you feel very comfortable just visually from looking at it. So the idea of being lost in there, I think, again, is that suggestion of tapping into our worst fears. Sequence three is getting to the cemetery. Sequence four is where is the map? And this is the first culmination point. So right in the middle of the movie, this is a major crisis for our characters. And this is where Josh has kicked the map into the river. So they are lost and without the map. So we can see how that is quite distressing, particularly in that forest environment. And it's a really good middle point culmination um, for our three protagonists, I thought. Right, so sequence five is attacked in the night. Sequence six is Josh goes missing. And this is where we have the second culmination point. So they are lost without food. They have no map. And one of the threesome has been taken. 
and that sets us up to go into the ending payoff. So sequence seven, I've called a little bundle of Josh's bits and then in sequence eight, the camera is dropped or the cameras are dropped. Now, in this unresolved ending, we hear a man's voice calling calling to them to follow the sound of his voice and Mike does this. He's the first to be attacked and drop the camera. We then hear Heather screaming and, you know, we see the switch in the cameras. She sees Mike facing the corner. She's attacked and her camera drops and that's it, lights out. The unresolved ending continues the mystery setup in the beginning and probably convinced audience members that it's a true story because the convention of an ending that ties most things up was not included and I think that really adds to that setup of the, like I mentioned before, of the found footage. So the point in this sequence breakdown I think that's worth noting is the simplicity of the single central actions for each sequence. They were very clear and once I got into the flow of the movie I could identify what they were very easily. So, Valerie, I think this is something that we could really learn from and I think this supports some of the things that you were talking about in terms of the story structure. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. And I I like what you just said about the ending and how it supports the idea of this being found authentic footage because it does. The other thing to keep in mind about the Blair Witch Project is that it is largely improvised. So Sanchez and Merrick had a loose outline that they were working from, which probably doesn't look a whole lot different than what you came up with for sequences, right? I mean, they were hitting the high points that they knew they had to hit. And what would happen is these three actors, they were hired on the basis of their ability to do improv and be in the woods for a week. So they were given a GPS which was never on camera. GPS was brand new at the time. That was never, ever on camera. The only thing we saw on camera was them using a paper map and compass, but the actors had a GPS. And each day they would have to, it's almost like geocaching. They would have to go to a particular place where there would be a bucket with three canisters in them. Like, you know, like, remember the old when we had film instead of digital cameras, the canisters that the film would come in, three of them would be on them with a name on each one. And that would be directions for their character for the day and the emotion and the activity that they would have to improvise on for the day. So like Heather's monologue, that famous, famous monologue where the camera is showing shining in her face and a lot of her face is not actually in shot totally improvised. Her instruction was that she had to apologize. And that scene is super famous now. That's all that actress, Heather Donahue. So when you say that there is a loose structure, there is a loose structure and the rest of it is improvised. So that's, I think, why when there are plot holes, that's probably where they're coming from. And you say you're going to highlight the plot holes. Well, all I can say is turn about is fair play. Because I did that with sliding doors last week. <laughs> so <laughs> lay it on me. <laughs> all right. Well, they're coming soon. I get to those at, at the end. But, uh, you know, and I, 
before that, there are some really good lessons to be learnt, um, which I'm not surprised about, uh, to be honest with you. And I think, like I said, if you're going in to watch this, there's a very good reason why you go in there and it delivers on that. So the plot holes can probably be forgiven in that first instance because you're completely taken over and distracted by the fear of the unknown. And, you know, there is, I don't think, maybe there's been one or two stories that we've studied so far on the podcast where they're perfect. So I, you know, I think we've got to give ourselves a little bit of room for creative, you know, mistakes and things like that. Right. So I want to today focus more on the major plot points for the story because I I found them really interesting, especially when I was breaking them down for the sequences. So the ending of the first two sequences does its job, like Valerie mentioned. It introduces us to the three main characters, what they are doing and what the plan is. So it's the who, what, when, where and under what conditions the story will take place. By the end of the second sequence, we see what Heather is like and her insistence to keep going to get to the graveyard. This is the predicament, the story event that clearly demonstrates the protagonist's objective. We see how focused Heather is on going deeper and deeper into the bush. This mirrors her confession at the end where she apologises to everyone's parents and realises that she was the one responsible for their predicament. And it also goes back to the point I made earlier about her having some sort of internal arc, although, again, it doesn't really help her very much in the end. At the midpoint, losing the map has completely changed the game for Josh, Mike and Heather. It was a symbol of hope for a way out and it's been lost. When Mike admits that he was the one who kicked the map into the creek, we see how much the group has fractured. We see how little trust Mike and Josh have in Heather's ability to get them out of the bush and back to the car. And it's a huge defeat and it seals their fate. Losing the map also locks the team into one type of action. They have a compass which they choose to use to head south and hopefully out of the forest. This is the only navigation tool they have left. However, I'd have to guess that none of the team knows how to use it properly and potentially that's why they walk in a circle. And I don't buy into one of the theories that they pass into some sort of time loop or alternate world in the story. So I did read a bit about that. And that doesn't make sense to me and I don't think there's any really good evidence in the movie to support that theory. In the sequence leading up to losing the map, we've also seen an attack by the antagonist and that's the three cairns surrounding the tent. The promise of horror has been kept And I would even go so far as to say I think the team crossed a threshold when they came across the graveyard and that is where Josh knocks over the can and it probably is the reason why he is the target and the first one to disappear. The second act climax has highlighted Heather's obsessive nature with filming whatever she can and, again, this echoes in her apology in Act 3. We've also seen a direct attack on the tent and Josh's gear. He's the target and he's the one that disappears. He can't be found. The loss of a key ally is completely in fitting with an action that the antagonist must make in a horror story. So it is on theme for the horror genre. 
and it clearly shows what's at stake for Heather and Mike. The difficult question for Heather and Mike is, how long do they search and do they still try to walk out? They do try to walk out, but the dim lighting and the close shots provide a sense of their hopelessness. They have resigned themselves to not getting out of the forest at this point. And also at this point, Mike and Heather know that they are up against something they can't fight. Their true nature of their dilemma is inescapable. This is also the point where the central, the central question is answered. There is something in the legend and some evil force in the forest. The pace of the final two sequences is a, is a great deal faster than the previous sequences. We are racing towards the end by the time we get to sequence seven and eight. The final sequences lead to a storming of the castle moment with a very negative ending. The final battle was never going to have a good outcome and it didn't and the fate and the arc of the three filmmakers was always going to end negatively and Valerie pointed out how and why previously. Now, we are meant to see in story, so here I'm going to go into some of the things that I don't think work very well. <laughs> so we are meant to see the true nature of the antagonist in this act, but it doesn't happen. We assume the three have died and we never get to see the true power, if that's what it is, of the antagonist. We don't even see the antagonist or know what it is. And I think that this is problematic and it's a trick that can probably only be used once. So when we take away that trick or that gimmick of the Blair Witch Project, it has other problems in its story. So I understand that the appeal of this movie, the suggestion of the Blair Witch, is powerful and scarier than most movies. It's what's not on the screen that matters the most and it increases the fear factor. But I also think that this is a problem with the movie, especially after I watched it a second and third time. The suggestion of possibly four sources of the witch creates confusion in the movie. So we have the hairy witch mentioned by Mary, and I think that's represented in the bush when the crew stumble across the symbols hanging from the trees. So when you see the figures, they kind of look a bit hairy and twiggy. And so that reminded me of what Mary said at the beginning of the story. Then we have one of the townsmen suggesting the witch was Mr. Parr, a hermit who lived in the mountain, and Valerie's already gone through that. And that is what's actually replicated at the end of the movie. So there's also the disappearing, reappearing girl from the late 1800s, Robin Weaver, and the events surrounding the men who were found at Coffin Rock. All of these legends at the start of the movie end up leaving a lot of things unresolved, which I consider a failure in storytelling terms. Yes, I understand it's found footage and that's the setup and the ending is, a, is an example of spooky, creepy, unanswered questions. But I think it would have worked better if we had one legend that was built upon itself or substantiated by the experience of what happened or what was found in the bush. I think this would also have worked better for the ambiguous ending. So I wasn't sure who or what I needed to fear. And as my daughter said, when she woke up in the night after watching this movie, 
at first I was scared, but then I realised that there wasn't a creature, so there was nothing to be scared of, which I was surprised at. I didn't, I didn't think that she would be scared of anything, but there you go. She was a little bit. But as soon as there wasn't anything on screen or something for her to focus on, she just dismissed it um, as something not to be scared of. Right, the symbols in the trees. Heather makes a point of showing us the written resources she has used for research, but she offers no explanation for the stick figures we see when they stumble into that section of the forest. And for someone who's researched the Blair Witch, Heather doesn't seem to know a great deal about it. She doesn't talk very much about it at all. This film forced me to think about the conventions for the monster in horror stories. And there is meant to be an inciting attack of the monster, which is meant to be the inciting incident for the story, and this doesn't happen. The monster is also meant to be off screen for as long as possible, and in the Blair Witch Project it doesn't appear at all, as I mentioned, and I say, again, I think that's problematic. Another problem I found while watching was the setup of Heather filming everything. The film we see is a combination of the two footage types distinguished by black and white and colour film. Heather, however, filmed everything, but we don't see everything that she filmed. So who is editing the footage that we're seeing and does that mean that we aren't really seeing found footage and we're seeing edited footage instead? I think this is a big logic problem. And apart from the night scenes... There is not a great deal that happens in the movie. The attacks were the same and the arguing was repetitive. The movie did show a descent into madness, but in some ways I felt like it was really just watching three people hurling F-bombs at each other. So I'm going to be a bit scathing here. So my biggest takeaway or the biggest lesson I learnt from watching this movie is that if you can't read a map or you don't know basic navigation and survival, don't go into the bush. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so there are some of the things. They, and I, I don't know if you saw some of that after watching it a few times, but they are things that when I thought about it logically didn't make sense for me. Ah, uh, this from the woman who wouldn't watch it in the night and wouldn't watch it alone. <laughs> uh, it's a much scarier movie when you watch it alone. I had I usually watch these movies on Friday night and I didn't do it this time because Friday night in my part of the world Hurricane Fiona was hurling through my neighborhood and I thought yeah on a a literal dark and stormy night when I could very well lose my power and I'm in the house by myself I don't think I'll watch it right now so I did rewatch it uh on a bright sunny Sunday afternoon <laughs> I think that's a very wise choice <laughs> I'm not that brave. <laughs> okay, let's get on to today's action step. All right, this one is a bit of a challenging one, I think. I want you to try giving part of your manuscript to a beta reader, no matter which genre that you're writing in. But find someone who likes to read the kind of book that you're writing and ask them if they can clearly visualize the events that you're describing or the scene that you've written, whatever it is that you've given them. So in other words, what you're trying to do here is determine how well your writing stimulates their imagination. 
ask them to tell you what the most vivid image is in the material that you've presented. Or maybe you can ask them to explain back to you uh, what it is that they've just read. How did it make them feel? Why did they feel that way? And that this applies to any genre because every story, regardless of the genre, is trying to evoke some sort of an emotional response in uh, the reader. Not just fear, which is what a horror is doing. Okay, so I think this one is a bit of a tough one. It's going to require you to be strong, but I believe in you. I think you can do it. All right. Well, I can't express how relieved I am. This episode is now over and this wraps that up for this week and hopefully for another year so I don't have to do a Halloween story for 12 months. Right, but join us again next week when we discuss Goodwill Hunting. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash innercircle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And you can also now find her on TikTok at Valerie Francis Author. If you'd like to find more out about me, visit melaniehill.com.au or visit me on Facebook as Melanie Hill Author. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be scary. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.